Uh, let's dig into God's word. My name is Pastor Justin. For all of you who are new today, and I get the joy and the privilege of being the lead pastor here at this amazing church. Man, I'll tell you what, we get two weeks of sunny weather and everybody must be going to the lake. So to all of those who are here today, thank you. And to all of those who are watching from the lake, we love you too. <laughs> Man, I'm excited to get into God's Word. We are going to continue our study in the book of 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at three verses. I told Pastor Enos, because of all the different things we're doing, I'm going to get done in between 40 and 45 minutes, <laughs> and I'm going to do that. So I want to just dig in. How many of you know I can spend more than an hour on just three verses? God's Word is just that good, isn't it? Man, I'm telling you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first three verses for us, and then I'm going to jump right in. We'll start digging in. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the, for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father God, as we look to your word today, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, help me stay true to your text. Help me preach your word. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys love the Disney movie Peter Pan? A few of you. I was a big fan. My kids won't watch Peter Pan. They don't like to watch the, what they call the old Disney movies. I keep telling them I'm not really that old. This is a classic. You guys are going to love it. But I was a big fan of Peter Pan growing up. Loved the movie Hook with Robin Williams. Yeah, some, some of you are fans. Always have loved Peter Pan. Well, recently I heard a, a preacher preaching, and he talked about something called the Peter Pan Syndrome. All right, it's a pop psychology term used to describe an adult who is socially immature. How many of you know some of those? <laughs> the term's been used informally by both lay people and some psychology professionals. So in 1983, there was a book written called The Peter Pan Syndrome, Men Who Have Never Grown Up. I know a few people I should give this book to, but his book became an international bestseller, and his name was Dr. Kylie, and he got this idea for the Peter Pan syndrome after noticing that, like the famous character Peter Pan in, in J.M. Barry's play, many of these troubled teenage boys that he treated had these problems. They didn't want to grow up. They didn't want to accept adult responsibilities. And, and this was something that continued into their adult years. Grown adults who don't want to grow up, don't want to get a job, don't want to get married, or they do have kids but don't want to be responsible fathers, all right? They want their moms and their dads to take care of them all of their life. I'm here today to tell you there are people like this. I know people in their 40s that are living with mom and dad in their basement, refuse to get a job, and what they do for eight hours a day is play video games, Okay, they're out there. Asher and Liam will not be doing that. <laughs> they basically refuse to live up. In fact, the Urban Dictionary actually has a name for this. Are you ready? Manolescent. Yeah, manolescent. A man of any age that shirks adult responsibilities. They're grown men that just don't grow up. Now, I want you to do something think this is this won't be dangerous but can you imagine if we came to church today and we were wearing diapers nothing but a diaper sipping on our sippy cup eating little puff puffs can you imagine that don't look to the left or the right I don't want you to imagine that person just imagine anybody coming to church and there's still an adult wearing diapers you know I remember when our toddlers were little Liam and Asher never liked to wear clothes <laughs> They just didn't. They loved to run around in their diaper. And they would let their diaper get so, I, they hated getting changed, so their diaper would always sag. And they would just run around the house. I'd have to chase them just to change the diaper. But can you imagine a, an adult doing that? Me coming to church one day, preaching in a diaper, because I, I don't want to use the big potty. Sipping my uh, Diet Coke out of my sippy cup, Right? It'd be weird. 
It would be weird. Sorry for that visual. I really... <laughs> Sadly, here's the truth. Many adults do this. They don't wear diapers, but they're, they're socially immature. They just don't want to mature. They don't want to grow up. And I, I know that growing up can sometimes not be fun. Growing, growing pains hurt. Going from adolescence to adulthood, it's, it's a hard trans, transition. But unfortunately, as we look at this text today, we're going to see that there are Christians in the world today that, are, that have that Peter Pan syndrome, at least spiritually speaking. They don't want to grow up. Now, Peter in our letter, not Peter Pan, but Peter in our letter who wrote this letter, tells us in verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the waves of childhood behind me. Amazing advice from Paul. When you become an adult, you put away childish things. My question today is, have you put away childish things? Have you put away the things of your spiritual infancy, and are you willing to grow in your walk and relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are you growing as a child of God? Or are you desiring to remain a child spiritually? Because a true and a genuine believer will grow. Some might say, well, I believe a person can experience salvation and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, but totally remain unchanged. But remember, in verse 23 of chapter 1, Peter used the phrase born again. We already talked about that, but remember Peter used that phrase, born again. We had to experience that rebirth because the Bible teaches us that we are, by nature, we're dead in our sin. Dead not biologically, but spiritually, we're born in this world dead on arrival. We're born without, a, or, or we're born, according to the Bible, with a heart of stone. And because of this, our hearts have no pulse, no flesh of life. It's completely calcified. We have no inclination whatsoever, no desire whatsoever for the things of God. That's why Jesus had to say this to Nicodemus. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Now listen to this. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit, to Spirit. So in order for a person to embrace the things of God, they have to experience a new birth, a birth that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul talked about it in Ephesians. He says that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And all throughout the New Testament, we read about this new birth, new life, as where before the rebirth, absolutely, before we experienced being born again, we had no desire for the things of God. But when we experience that new birth, God creates this desire in us to grow and to know him. So Peter's mentioned already, he's talked about being born again, and now he goes into chapter 2 with the consequences and the implications of that, what it means to be born again. Part of growing up is taking care of yourself, right? People need food to survive. You learn that in all your basic survival classes. You're going to need food. But they need the right food to be healthy. I was sitting watching something on YouTube preparing for this message, and this health expert was talking about the right food. And at one point he says, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And Asher sitting next to me starts giggling. I looked at him. I said, what are you, what's so funny? He said, I'm just imagining you as a donut. <laughs> said, that's not funny, Asher. <laughs> you need the right food to be healthy. We who have been spiritually born again need the right food so that we can grow and be strong. And in verse 1 through 3, Peter gives us instruction on training our appetites so that we can experience spiritual health and strength. It's God's will for you to grow. God wants you to grow. God doesn't want you to be a spiritual infant. He doesn't want you to be caught up with the worries of this world. He doesn't want you to be uh, struggling with the same sin your entire life. He wants you to grow and experience uh, spiritual strength and spiritual maturity. That is God's will for your life. 
And in verse 1, he starts with the things we need to stay away from. Look at this kind of like a, a, a diet. I, I've been on a diet now for two weeks. Not a diet. I can't call it a diet because it's really not a diet. I've pretty much just given up eating four donuts a day. <laughs> My doctor kept telling me I have to lose weight. I was 175 pounds, 172 pounds when I came and got voted in. The other day, two weeks ago at the doctor's office, I weighed in at 202. Yeah, I know. Cincinnati chili, that's what it is. I'm telling you. Skyline, daylight donuts. You guys have some good food here. And they're all on the way, my route to the church every morning. I was with a friend who was six foot two. That's pretty tall. And I told him, yeah, I got to lose weight. I weighed in at 202 pounds. And he said, that's what I weigh. <laughs> he said, you're, you're six foot two, though. I'm five foot five. <laughs> it's not good. I need to lose weight. So I, I've been on a diet trying to eat healthy. And this is how you need to look. I remember the doctor said, these are the things you need to stay away from, Justin. It was embarrassing when he said, well, what are, what's your diet consist of? And Liz, you know, says, be honest. <laughs> I wanted to tell him I wake up with a shake every morning, egg white. So I had to tell him I usually have maybe two or two, three donuts a day. <laughs> you know, followed by a Big Mac for lunch with French fries, and I make sure I pour salt on the fries. Oh, that's good. Then followed by KFC at night. That's a typical day. <laughs> he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real basic with you, Mr. Hansen. I'm going to tell you certain things to stay away from. Here's what Peter's doing for us. He's telling us things to stay away from. Verse 1, read with me. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So Peter opens up verse 1 with a so. Peter's taking us back to verse 22 of chapter 1 when he says we've purified our souls by our obedience to the truth and we should love one another. He then says, we were born again of the word of God. So what Peter's now saying to you is this. You need to grow up. You need to be healthy. And a part of growing up and a part of being healthy is going to require a putting away. You see those words there, put away? This putting away is a picture of taking off dirty clothes. And I'm glad that you all came to church this morning wearing clean clothes. Amen? This is something that we do. We don't wear dirty clothes. I remember when I first got married with Liz, I, this was back in the day when I didn't eat three or four donuts a day, and I would go play basketball. Uh, you don't want to ask the small group, the basketball small group, how I did when I showed up to play. So I would go play every Thursday night with the church, and then I would come home, and I'd be all nasty and sweaty, and I would smell like a locker room. And the first thing I would want to do, you know, when I walked through the door, when I would see my beautiful new bride is, well, I would want to give her a little smooch. So I'd come up, and I would hug her, and she would say, ugh. She would say, don't even come close to me until you clean and take those nasty, sweaty, gross clothes off and put some clean ones on. I learned real quick, never approach my wife when I'm sweaty, <laughs> if I want to kiss. This putting away, it's a picture of taking off dirty clothes. That's, that's literally what it means. In ancient Christian baptisms, actually, the ones being baptized, they would take off, they would discard the clothes that they wore to the ceremony. And after their baptism, they would put on the new robes that they got from the church. The exchanging clothes would symbolize the reality of their decision to put away the old life and take up the new life. The first step that Peter gives, and it's a negative one, is get rid of some of the sins in your life if you're going to grow and you're going to be healthy. Put away, he says. Put away. It's a command. It's an imperative. This isn't an option. Peter's not telling you uh, you have the option to do this. He's saying you need to do this. Do this. And, and it's in the tense of once and for all. You take the dirty clothes off and you lay it aside. You put them away forever. Same word, actually, that Peter uses is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, when Paul says this, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Peter's saying, put them away, 
put these practices away. Don't condone these sins. Don't excuse them or cover them. You put them away. And please, if you're taking notes, there, there are five practices that Paul is going to tell us to put away. And I need you, if you're taking notes, to, to make note of this, that these five sins or five practices, these five habits that Paul's going to talk about are signs of immaturity. They're signs of immature Christians. So what are these sinful habits, all right? They're all relational. I want you to know this, too. All of them are relational sins. They deal with people. Isn't that, isn't that funny? You and I are called to love Jesus, that's vertical, and then we're called to each other, that's horizontal. Your relationship with Jesus should affect the way that you treat each other. I am so sad and brokenhearted that so many people in the world will look at the church and say, I don't want nothing to do with people like that. I've dealt with people like that. They're mean to each other. They're nasty. Man, I don't want anything to do with it. What a shame. Because our relationship with God should affect our relationship with each other. Peter's going to say, these habits are so bad for your spiritual life that he says you need to put them away. You need to say no to these things. Make sure they're not a part of your life. They're relational sins, and they're going to ruin your desire for God's truth. I heard one preacher call this junk food in his sermon. He would say this is a list of junk food. He talked about an article on a heart-friendly website, and it said this, food needs to give you the nutrients you need in order to grow to repair damages, to prevent disease. And anything that you put in your mouth except for water needs to provide nutrition. So it should not take away nutrition. And if it does, it's a poison. It kills slowly, but it kills. I'll say this. These sins that Paul talks about are poison. They're poison. They kill. The first word, malice. First word is malice. It's a general word for ill will. It's an attitude that that eventually turns into words that are said and deeds that are done. It begins inside, but eventually it comes, it'll speak out. Malice, ill will. It's anger and wrath towards people where they really let you down. We all get angry and irritated, but some of us will foster this deep hatred towards maybe a father, a coworker, a husband, and we'll foster that deep hatred because those people, maybe, maybe they attacked us at our inner core. They damaged us deep down, and so we'll hold on to this anger and we'll foster it. It's deep-seated feelings against a person. Hatred that lasts on and on, intense and long-lasting bitterness against a person. It means really wishing that something bad would happen to that person. I remember in a church meeting... <laughs> told you sheep can bite sometimes my first ministry position I was a youth pastor and I remember being a part of a meeting and you know it's funny I was a part of the meeting with the pastoral team and the board and then they had to go present this this information to the church in the business meeting thank God that we don't have business meetings like this one I'm about to tell you but I remember someone getting so angry at the pastor for moving into this new direction that they stood up in the business meeting and they said, I hope you get hit by a car after this service or this meeting. And I remember thinking, wow, such malice, such hang- anger, such, and, and their, their hate towards that pastor wasn't from that meeting. It had been fostered for years. They just couldn't let go of something where that pastor had let them down. And just, just so you know, people are gonna let you down in life. okay. But this is what Peter's talking about, holding a grudge, turning your heart over to evil. It it means you can no longer have any good feelings towards somebody, all right, or to that person. None whatsoever, nothing. You could care less if something bad happened to that person. In fact, you might even rejoice and laugh and giggle when something bad happens. Oh, they deserved it. And Peter tells us to take the clothes of malice out of our soul, put them away in a closet and leave them there. I've heard a story about Leonardo da Vinci. You know, he, he's famous for, well, he's famous. He's painted some amazing paintings. But his Last Supper painting, there's a story that he had somebody in his life that really hurt him. Somebody that hurt him deep down and he considered this person his enemy. He, he just did not like this person. And when he was painting the Last Supper, his plan was to paint the, the face 
of this, his enemy, this person who hurt him, he was going to take that face and paint it on Judas. And he, was, he thought, that's, that's well, I think he thought it was humorous. I'm going to get him. I'm going to paint his face on Judas. And then after he was done painting Judas, he just, he couldn't quite paint Jesus. He just couldn't get it figured out. He couldn't work it. He couldn't, in his mind, he couldn't see Jesus, and he kept trying it over and over and over until he finally realized, until he released that malice in his heart towards this friend, until he gave that to God and let it go, until he put it away, put it off, he would never really see Jesus clearly. And so he redid it again, didn't use the face, and of course we know the end of the story. It was a masterpiece. All right? Lesson in that for us as believers. Malice in our heart towards somebody is gonna stop us from being used by God. And I've seen this so many times, especially in ministry. I've seen it with fellow ministers. They get so mad at somebody and they hold so much malice in their heart for somebody and they can't let it go and God can't even use them. I'm telling you, church, don't be that person. Don't hold on to that. Do what Peter's saying and put it off. Take it off and put it away so that you can see God clearly and God can use you. Put away the malice. Second word he uses is deceit. Now, Peter was a fisherman. He understood this word. The word literally means to bait a hook. Think about that. That's deceit, to bait a hook. Now, if you're a fisherman, and I like to say I am, at least I like to go out and do it, We're a bunch of liars. We're a bunch of deceivers. All you who like to go fishing, you deceive. That's what you do. You're putting something on that hook, right, that you don't don't want the fish to know what's underneath that bait, right? My dad, he used to go fly fishing in Washington State, and all of his buddies would spend hours making their own lures. They would have a little desk in their garage, and they would make it, and they would try as hard as they can to make it look as realistic as possible so that fish doesn't know that there's a hook underneath that. We would do everything. We'd watch it in water to see how it moves because we are wanting to deceive that fish. We want that fish to look and see uh, whatever's on that hook and take a big bite. That's, That's deceit. Deceit among people is when you play a trick in order to get your way. You're manipulating them. You're dishonest with them. Whether it's an overt lie or you're really good at hiding an aspect of the truth to gain personal advantage, that's deceit. Now, notice both of these have to do with people and our relationships, malice and deceit. And if you don't put away deceit, it's going to stunt your growth. I heard all my life, don't drink coffee, it'll stunt your growth. I drank a lot of coffee, and I'm (laughs) 5'5". If you don't put away deceit, it's going to stunt your growth. It'll take away your desire for holiness and righteousness. It's like kids eating junk food. They're not hungry for dinner. I hate going to the restaurants that bring out those rolls. I hate it because my kids will fill up on the rolls and then they'll keep asking, can you bring another thing of rolls? No. They love that little butter, that nice butter. They'll put it on and by the time dinner comes, they're full. They're full. Or the kids will, I have put locks on my cupboards. That's, that's where we've gotten in the Hanson family. I have to lock the fridge and I have to lock the food cabinet because if I have anything that's sweet in there, my kids will find it and devour it within minutes. And then they're never hungry. I'm not hungry. Well, that's because you ate 12 Twinkies. They spoil their dinner. Deceit. It's like eating junk food. There was a story of Abraham Lincoln who took on a case with somebody, and this person was really, well, quite crooked. But he found a way to get around the law, and he, he felt he had a winning case. And Abraham Lincoln, when he was an attorney, took him, took him and told him, look, you, you do have a case. You, you have a good chance of winning. It's just I don't think I can represent you. When the, the fellow asked, well, why not? He said, because I know... <laughs> what we're doing here and I know it's wrong and in my mind every time I present the case I'm in my mind saying Abraham Lincoln you are a liar you are a deceiver you are deceiving and he says I'm afraid that pretty soon it's in my mind it's going to come out of my mouth you're going to have to find somebody else to represent you honest Abe love it right deceit get rid of it throw it away third word he says is hypocrisy the, the word means one who pretends 
puts on a show, acts out something that they are not. At first, the word simply meant one who replied or answered to another person. Then it came to mean acting, as actors play-acted the lines of a scene. Finally, the word used in the worst sense, play-acting, pretending, one who wore a mask to hide his real self, someone who put on an outward show. The Greeks would wear masks, often with a smile or a frown, and they would play a part. They would wear a mask in order to play a part, and the word given was hypocrite. That was a stage actor. Now it's become a prominent word even in the English language, so a hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be something he or she is not. I once heard a southern preacher say this, be what you is and not what you ain't, because if you ain't what you is, then you is what you ain't. That'll preach. Be what you is and not what you ain't, because if you ain't what you is, then you is what you ain't. (laughs) Someone's a hypocrite when they act as though they love God, but doesn't live like they love God doesn't live like God tells them to live. Someone's a hypocrite when they act like they're about people but really could care less. When someone promises but never intends to keep a promise. When when they say they believe God's word but they hold malice in their heart for other believers. Don't be a hypocrite. I even heard a preacher mention a story about a man who was arrested for impersonating a physician. He wasn't a doctor but he knew a lot of medical terms. Right? He knew human anatomy and he, he knew just enough to be dangerous. They caught him because he wrote prescriptions that were the wrong prescriptions and he kept doing it over and over and over and finally some of the workers thought something's up with this guy, something's fishy. And he was, turns out he was a medical student. Like I said, he had just enough knowledge to be dangerous. He was almost a doctor but he wasn't a doctor. He didn't graduate. He was a hypocrite. He played the part of something that he was not. And so too, a person can wear a mask on Sunday and as soon as church is over, they take that mask off and they go back to their real life and then when Sunday comes again, they bring that mask again. They stick it on. We cannot be like that, Christians. There cannot be any masks in our life. Tells you to put, take off hypocrisy. Envy. Fourth word is envy. The, the word means to want what someone else has. All right? They start to want it so bad that they'll do whatever it takes, even if it means taking it away. They just want something. They're not satisfied with what they have. They're always longing for what someone else has. People envy all kinds of things. Now, I'm guilty of, of envying at times. I'll be real honest, sometimes when I go to Cincinnati Christian School and they have their concerts or they'll have their uh, assemblies or whatever that they invite parents to, I have been guilty of envy. I will look at some of those parents with their six-year-olds and their six-year-old is sitting very quietly (laughs) watching the speaker They don't even make a peep. And meanwhile, my six-year-old's taking his shirt off, his shoes off. He's sprawled out on the floor. He's taken marker, and he's colored up the floor. I'm trying to throw fishy crackers, anything just to get this kid to sit in his, his chair and be still. I've envied. What in the world did they do to get God's favor and blessing like that? And I'm begging Liam, sit down. Sit down, please. Have you ever been there? Just me? I envied when I took Liam to Texas Roadhouse Steakhouse and I took my eye off him just for one minute. He jumped from the seat, grabbed the horns of a buck hanging on the wall, ripped it off of the wall. When I turned around, all I saw was the wood, the little wood frame and his two legs sticking up and you could just hear his laugh. Sometimes I envy parents who can get their kids to just sit still. Whatever you're doing, teach me. But people envy all the time. We envy money, position, looks even, possessions, popularity, clothes, social status, recognition. We'll even envy authority, right? It's what one writer said. It's the last sin Christians will confess because it's so ugly. Envy is what goes on in your heart when somebody is blessed around you and you're mad because they got some fortunate thing that happened to them or when you're joyful that some misfortune happened to another person. It's the attitude that says this, I should have what they have and I don't. 
And that breeds an attitude deep within its envy. I've seen this even in ministry. I've had friends before who have told me that they feel like they're working for a pastor that doesn't deserve to be the lead pastor and they feel that they should be the lead pastor. I had a close friend who dealt with this. I said, listen, man, you're, you're walking a slippery slope here. He said, no, I should be the pastor. I give more to this church. I work harder than this pastor and I think I should talk to the board. I think I should, no, 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 no. See, something was happening in my friend's heart. He thought, that he should have it. It wasn't fair that this pastor had it. He should have it. That's envy. It's envy. It wasn't his. God didn't give it to him. He was envying something that he didn't have. The last word he uses is slander. This is, this is the one that breaks my heart the most, that this exists in the church so much. But slander means to criticize, to judge, to backbite to gossip, censor, condemn, and grumble against another person. Slander occurs whenever someone says something untrue about someone else that results either intentionally or unintentionally in damaging that somebody else's reputation. I have seen this so many times in the church. And when it occurs, it becomes divisive, discouraging, and confusing. And it often affects so many people in the church. The Bible says that God hates slander. God hates slander. We hear about all the big sins all the time. We'll really focus on those big sins, those, the areas where God says this is a black and white issue, you shouldn't do it, God hates this, God hates that. And they're the ones that are really easy to point the finger at. And then there's this. There's slander happening in the church and nobody ever wants to point a finger at it. God hates slander. It's evil. That's why Paul listed it as a behavior of those who hate God in Romans chapter 130. And it's why James calls it a demonic behavior. You know why? Because slander is stealing. If you slander, you're a thief. Now listen to me. This devaluing is at the heart of what makes slander so evil. The Bible tells us a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. That's Proverbs 22.1. And in this context, a good name represents a person's character, which is the most valuable thing about their identity. A good name is who we are in the minds of others. And since relationships trade in the currency of trust, a reputation is a very precious asset. So whenever we handle a person's name, who they are in the minds of others, we are stewarding a treasure that belongs to them. If we damage a person's reputation unjustly, we are stealing their good name. We're vandalizing their character. And I see this in the church. It's rampant. I see it on social media all the time. This causes some very real, sometimes long-lasting damage to people because restoring a devalued name is very difficult. Who knows what love, joy, counsel, comfort, and opportunities we take from people if we care for their name carelessly. God knows. He hates, he hates it. God hates it when we speak evil of his name and when we speak evil of others. Titus 3.2, God hates it. He will hold us accountable for every careless word that we speak. Think about that before you go and say something. Think about that before you get on social media and post something. God is gonna hold you accountable. That's what it says in Matthew 12.36. This should be a great incentive for us to put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Remember that God is going to hold us accountable. We will face God one day. We will. If you don't struggle with slander, help those who do. Taking a little extra time on this one today. Maybe you're saying, I don't slander anybody. I've never spoken an ill word about anybody. Well, pin a rose on your nose. That is amazing. Pat yourself on the back. I got a sticker for you in my office. You can come see me after church. <laughs> no. If you don't struggle with slander, that's, a, that's awesome. Praise God. That's a sign of maturity. But help those who do. So become people who are not safe to slander around. 
Can you do that? Can you be a person? You're, you're not a safe person to slander around. You need to ask questions like, man, is this information I should know? Do you want me to help you pursue reconciliation? These are questions you need to ask when you hear slander. Are you doing everything you possibly can to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger? Slander? How can I help you guard this person's reputation like a treasure? Friends don't let friends slander. Friends don't let friends act like God-haters. The more we love people, the more we hate slander because a slander hates its victims. You want to be a good friend, help your friend. In verse 2 through 3, he gives us the things to crave. So he's told us things we need to stay away from. Now he's going to tell us some things we need to crave. Look with me at verse 2. It says, like newborn infants, long, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Did you know that the highest rate of growth in human life is the infant stage? They change weekly. I don't know if you've noticed it, but I did when I was a missionary. Liz and I were missionaries before we came here, and sometimes that meant I had to travel a lot. So whenever I was itinerating, sometimes I'd have to leave Liz for like a week at a time, maybe at the most two weeks at a time. Well, when our babies were brand new, when they were newborn babies and I would go for two weeks, I would come back and it would be like a different baby. I'd be like, oh my word, Asher's grown so much. Man, he's grown because at that infant stage, they're just, they're growing so much. Change happens because they're eating a lot and they're growing dramatically during that phase. Now, when, when my babies were hungry, they let me know or they let Liz know. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. They are going to let you know when they're hungry. A baby will desire milk. They're going to let you know about it. Here, we're, we have this charge, okay? We have a charge. Peter gives us a charge or he gives us a, a command. Because for a baby, milk is absolutely necessary for life. It's, it's a necessity. You can't live without it. I couldn't not feed Asher or Liam or Allie milk. Well, I didn't really feed them milk, but you know what I'm saying. They needed milk to live and survive and to grow. And what's true for physical, physical growth is true for spiritual growth. Milk does a body good. You remember those commercials? Yeah. They were a little deceiving because they made me believe if I drank a glass of milk, I was going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the end of the week. But milk does a body good. Now, when Peter uses this little metaphor like babies, he's not writing to his audience saying, man, you guys are a bunch of babies. You're a bunch of infants. He's not implying that. He's not saying you're, you're so spiritually immature. That's not what he's saying. You need to understand that. So for those of you who are saying, well, I'm not a spiritual infant, this verse still applies to you. Peter's giving believers of any level, whatever your spiritual level is, he's giving all believers a charge. He's giving a command. Long for God's truth like a baby longs for milk. And if you do that, you will grow. That's the intent of this passage. It all revolves around a single verb. Look, the word for long. Here is simply the word desire. It's a command to desire. The Greek word means a vigorous, passionate, intense desire. Gotta have it. Unfortunately, I have that for Dunkin' Donuts. And I gotta kill it. A craving. Man, poor Chris. We got in the, Chris Banfield today, we got in the, the uh, elevator and I looked right at him and I said, you had a donut, didn't you? <laughs> he said, yeah, I did. I can smell it. <laughs> crave those things, those little devil's dishes. I've, I heard a, a preacher once share a story about a farmer named Ollie. Ollie was Lutheran. He lived in a town back in the Midwest, a farming community, and everyone in his town was Catholic except Ollie. He was the only one who was Lutheran. Well, that was kind of a problem because on Friday evenings when he, he would barbecue beef in his backyard porch and that smell would make its way to all of his Catholic neighbors, they would start craving beef on Friday. And on Friday, they were only allowed to eat fish. They ate fish, not meat. So the community got together and they said, man, let's go talk to Ollie, right? Let's, let's just go talk to him. And, they, and they, they did. And they went to Ollie and they said, listen, Ollie, you're the only Lutheran in this 
Catholic community, and the nearest Lutheran church is like the next town. So we've been thinking, it's too far for you to go to church. Why don't you just convert and be a Catholic? Be one of us. Join us. Join our community. And he thought about it, and he said, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. That's a great idea. Count me in. I'm going to become Catholic. So the big day came, and they arranged it with the priest, and Ollie knelt down on his knees, and the priest stood over him and put his hands on Ollie, and he said this, Ollie, you were born a Lutheran, and you were raised a Lutheran, but now, and then he sprinkled water and incense on Ollie, he said, but now you are Catholic. And that was it. Ollie got up, gave the guy a hug, hugged all of his new friends. He was a part of the church, and everything went well. Everything was going great till Friday came around. And once again, all of Ollie's neighbors could smell beef being barbecued. They thought, what in the world? He's a Catholic. That doesn't smell like fish. We got to go talk to Ollie. He's changed now. He, he can't do this anymore. He can't eat fish or can't eat beef on Friday. So they went over and just as they were entering his yard, they peered over the fence and there was Ollie standing over his barbecue talking to his beef. He said, you were born a beef? You were raised a beef. And then sprinkled salt and spices and says, but now you're a fish. I love that story. All he loved is beef and he was determined to eat beef no matter what. He craved beef the way that I crave Dunkin' Donuts. So he thought, man, if that worked, this will work. He wanted to eat beef. My question to you today is what do you crave? What do you crave? And some of you are going to object and say, I don't have, a, you can't command somebody to desire some, something. Well, I love what St. Augustine said in his confessions. He said this, O love that ever burnest and art never quenched, O charity, my God, enkindle me. Thou commandest continence, grant what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. That's the way you're supposed to pray. Pray for that passion. You don't have a desire, get it. Go get it. Don't just settle for the idea that you can't change. I come to church, Pastor Justin, I just don't have a desire. I'm thinking about the sports game after a church. I'm telling you, God, Peter is not giving you an option here. He's saying desire it, crave it, go get it. I don't have to convince you to eat a meal, right? I don't have to, I don't have to convince anybody to crave food because we need it for survival. You might go a day without food. By your second day, you're craving it. You want it. You're thinking of that Big Mac with that amazing sauce. Oh, McDonald's. Got to stop. This was not the sermon to preach two weeks into my diet. Peter tells you to crave pure milk. Here he compares the Bible to unadulterated pure milk, the milk of the word. Do you know that God's word is like milk? It's nurturing. His word is full and rich and nutrient power for your life. Listen to this. The, the American Medical Association says that in a lifetime, the average American will eat about 50 head of cattle and 2,400 chickens. They will eat about 310 pigs and about 26 acres of grain and about 50 acres of fruit and vegetables in a lifetime. And if they had studied me, a million donuts. Let me ask you a question. How much of the Word of God do you feed on? How much time do you spend feeding your heart with the milk of the word? I've heard that there are some birds that can go nine days without food. Some dogs can go 20 days without food, and some turtles can go 500 days without food. They say some snakes can go 800 days without food, and some fish can go 1,000 days without food. I believe that because my son has a beta fish, and he always forgets to feed him. And yet I know some believers who will go day after day after day after day without the food of the word of God. How do you expect to grow? How do you ever expect to be what God wants you to be if you don't feed on God's word? Long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And if somebody came up to me today and they looked really sick and they looked pale and they looked skinny and they just said, man, something's wrong, uh, the first question I would ask is, uh, did you eat anything today? And if that person looked at me and said, no, I, I, only eat, I only eat on Sundays. I don't eat Monday through Saturday. I just eat on Sundays. I would look at that person and say, go eat something. 
Go eat something. Can you imagine only eating on Sundays? And yet there are people that will go weeks without ever even opening up their Bible. Ever. Man, I can't press this upon you enough. You're like a car that is severely out of alignment. And you need, you, you need God's word. This is life or death. I can't emphasize this enough. This is life or death. It's like Moses said in Deuteronomy 34. This is not an idle word. This is your life. This is not an idle word. This is your life. Long for the pure spiritual milk. And why? Look at what Peter says. That by it you may grow up into salvation. Did you know that 1,800 verses record Jesus' words? Of that 1,800, 180 are quotations from the Bible. 10% of everything that Jesus said in the Bible was a quotation of your Bible that you hold in your hands. How much of your speech would, would Scripture quotation? You think you need it less than Jesus? How much of the things coming out of your mouth would be quotation of Scripture? I hear people all the time tell me, I work too much. I never have time. Okay, get a listening Bible then. Get a Bible on, on CD or whatever people listen to today in cars. I have an older car. <laughs> listen to it on the way to work. Make it a priority. Like I said, you always find a way to eat in some way. Even if you were so busy and you, you'd missed a meal or you missed two meals, trust me, by the third meal, you realize you're hungry and you're going to go eat. You're going to do whatever it takes to find food. When the word of God becomes as essential to you as eating, you won't miss it for days on end, I promise you. You will crave it, you will want it, and if you don't have it, you're gonna be hungry for it. I've heard mothers tell me before, I have kids, I have no time for God's word. I have kids too, and they are crazy. And summer is here in full swing, which means they are at home all day but guess what? Parents, mothers, fathers, how are you going to raise your kids if you're not full of God's word? Go to bed a half hour earlier. Wake up a half hour earlier. Get the Bible in. I remember my dad was busy. He worked three jobs. He left his job as an attorney, became a pastor. It was a home missions church, which meant he's not really getting a salary from the church, so he had to work two other jobs just to make ends meet. And he was busy from 7 in the morning, usually till about 6 or 7 at night. By the time he came, he made sure he spent time with his kids. He'd have to wake up at 4 a.m. every single morning because he was hungry for God's word and he needed it. I know because his little office or his little prayer den was right next to my room and often he would wake me up. Man, you'll find time. Peter's given us the charge. Now he gives us the purpose. Crave milk so you can grow. Some translations say you may be caused to grow up. You cannot grow spiritually without a steady diet of God's word. You just can't. You can't just read a devotional. It's not enough. There's nothing wrong with a devotional. Nothing wrong with Christian books. But you need the word, the pure word. You can't grow without it. It would not be normal if adults were still, I told you, wearing diapers and drinking out of sippy cups. Something would be wrong. God's commanded you to grow and grow up. Ask yourself this, am I in the same place spiritually that I was a year ago or maybe even five years ago? Have I not grown beyond that? Is that just sort of where I've stagnated and stayed? Because if that's the case, that's not God's will for you. That's not God's plan for you. I think that's why Pete, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. God's word straightens us out. It teaches us to do what's right. It's God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. And then Peter moves to the result. You taste that the Lord is good. The word tasted means, if so be that you have experienced if so be that you have found it true that the Lord is gracious, that the Lord is good, that the Lord is kind. In other words, as you study God's word, you are going to find Jesus. And when you experience Jesus in his word, there's something tremendously sustaining and satisfying about Jesus Christ.
Jesus sustains the heart. He satisfies the human soul. Do you know that God has made you, that you have this God-created vacuum in your life, and that vacuum is never going to be satisfied with anything or anyone except Jesus Christ? You can go search for it all your life. You won't find it. He's the only one who can satisfy you. I just got back from Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I, I love those chocolate shops. I'm going to end with this story. I love the chocolate shops. They'll make the fudge right in front of you. But then afterwards, they'll let you sample it. And so I was on a special diet. We, we were there with uh, the marshals, and at this point, the marshals left, and Liz took the girl, girl, <laughs> I have one girl, she took Allie to another shop and told me to walk around with the boys. Thank you for that, Liz. That was, <laughs> she gave me the two hard ones. And I walked by one of those chocolate shops, and I thought, if I go in there, I know what they're going to do. They're going to give me a sample, which I won't be able to say no to. And then if I can just taste, if I can just taste it, I'm walking out of there with a pound of fudge. It's like Costco. I am that guy. Every time that tries a sample, I'm like, I'll take one of those. Anything. If I can just taste it and taste how good it is. This is what Paul, Peter is saying here. This message this morning about this amazing book is that there is a savior who loves you, who went all the way to the cross of Calvary to pay the price for your sins and he wants to come in and save you. He wants to come in and clean you up. He wants to come in and sustain your life and all you need to do is try and see. That's it, that's it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Some of you have never experienced Jesus Christ. You may have even gone to church all your life, but you have never really tasted him and experienced how amazing and how good he truly is. And it's not a hard process. All you have to do is surrender your life to him. You don't even have to come up here. You don't have to, there's no, there's nothing like that that you have to do. You just have to say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you are who you say you are. I am a sinner and I need your grace and your forgiveness and I put my faith and trust in you. And that's it. That's it. That's all you have to do. So if you haven't done that before, you can do that right now. It's as simple as I just said. You don't even need to repeat after me. You just say it in your own words. God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need you. The Holy Spirit's gonna come and dwell inside your heart and you are going to start experiencing an amazing life. You're gonna start tasting that God is good. I'm not telling you your problems are gonna go away. You might walk out the door to the same situation, but boy, will you have a different perspective. You won't be doing it alone. You're gonna be doing it with Jesus. I'm telling you, he makes a difference in our life. Father God, I love you so much. I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who you gave on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can experience your goodness. God, thank you for reminding us today as followers of you, there are certain habits in our life that we need to put off and get rid of. And then there are certain things in our life that we need to embrace. And that is your word. God, give us a desire, a craving for your word. We want it. I pray this in Jesus' name.